Lights, camera, action. We have Ellen Curris. Yay! <laughs> hey, Charlie. How fabulous. Um, you know, let's start with, with, with right now. Rather, to, you know, I don't want to go back and dig deep into, like, uh, into history. We'll, we'll go there. But I'd, I'd rather start with what you're up to right now and what's going on. And you were just telling me about the thing that you're about to do with, with, with Spike. Tell me about that. Well, uh, right now I'm currently directing a series for Shonda Rhimes, which is called Inventing Anna, uh, here in New York. And I'm really happy to be here in New York because I haven't been home since mid-June because I've been directing a lot. And oftentimes it takes me away. And also I'm working with Spike on filming American Utopia, which is David Byrne's Broadway play. So that is an incredible performance, incredible work that David has done following up so much of his life work. And uh, it's really important work and I'm really happy to be a part of it. Yeah, it's really exciting. So, and then, uh, and, and with, this is your first time working with, with Shonda or you've worked with, uh, with Shonda before? No, this is my first time working with her. Yeah, because yeah. I was gonna, yeah. I was gonna, I was, it was just over the weekend, I was with uh, Oliver Bogelberg who did Scandal with, uh, with that group, yeah. yeah. So he had mentioned, and I told him I would be here with you. He said, oh, say hello to, yeah. Ellen, yeah. <laughs> well, I've done yeah. quite a bit yeah. of Netflix yeah. work now. You know, yeah. I first started with Ozark, uh, and I've done now two seasons of Umbrella Academy as a director. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a different world. It's a different approach. I mean, it's a different world of cinema now and, and the different kinds and forms of cinema that are happening. Um, you know, the, the episodic TV world has certainly changed tremendously. I mean, when I was... A DP, I remember thinking I would never do TV, and I and I didn't. You know, I stayed in the movie world very much so. I would do different films, but they were always films. And things have changed now, and when I, I actually had been asked to do a pilot on a TV series uh, several, it was about four years ago, three years ago, and, um, and I said, well, I don't have time to do it. Um, they asked me if I they could take me to dinner and pick my brain about the ideas anyway because they knew that I... I understood a lot of it conceptually. So I did that. I went to dinner and I basically talked for three hours about what I thought, you know, the series could be, what it, what, what it was. And then they turned around six months and later and they asked me if I would direct two episodes. So that's how I got into directing uh, episodic television. I had been directing commercials before that. Right. So you had, so you had, you went from, from having your life be all about cinematography to directing and the first thing you were directing was uh, was uh, was uh, repeatedly doing commercials, and then you got an opportunity to do episodic, and that was it. Well, actually, if I step back, I actually started as a director way back when in the middle '80s, um, when I was doing a master's degree at night at NYU. Um, I was working um, uh, in the film industry. You know, I was working as an associate producer and working in the editing room and. And I started going to school at night because I wanted to get my master's after I went to Brown University for my right. undergrad. Right, and in Brown you studied right. semiotics and, and, and anthropology, exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. Right. And I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. So I started, um, I went to, you know, was doing classes at night and I had to eventually do a thesis film. So for a thesis film, I had an idea. I was directing this film. I hired a cinematographer and I didn't know anything at the time. I mean, I nothing really about putting together a film. 
But um, I hired this cinematographer and I sat with him and I told him about the kind of ideas that I was looking for in this film. It was, I wanted to make a documentary film that was a fusion of documentary and fiction. And nobody at the time was doing that. It was kind of a, an idea of how I could create a story, uh, a poetic story in the spirit of the truth. So, you know, creating elements that would contribute to the story, um, but which would be fictionalized and fabricated. Um, and so I was trying to explain to him what I wanted, and we went out for four days and we shot. And when I got the dailies back, which I was looking on film, this is a time when you had steam back. All film, yeah. Looking at the dailies, and I and I thought, you know, they're nice-looking dailies. They look good, but there was something missing. I thought, you know, what is it that's missing? And I didn't really understand it at the time, but I realize now that when I picked up the camera and I said, I need to find out what that is. What is it that isn't working for me in these dailies? What am I looking for? So I picked up the camera and, and I started trying to create stories with the camera. And I realized later on that that's what it is. I was trying to create meaning with the image. I was trying to make the image be a metaphor for what the story was. And, and that kind of has been the guide for my entire life as a cinematographer and as a filmmaker. So it's that how I became a cinematographer, because I started shooting. I started shooting my own film. Then people saw what I did, and they started asking me to shoot. So I started really exploring the, the medium in a different way. And how did you come across doing uh, uh, Samsara in uh, the documentary in Cambodia? How did that... How did you, because that was, was that after NYU or? Well, um, I, uh, at the same time, uh, I started making my film, which is about uh, Laotian refugees in Laos. Which, which, I, had, which I've seen. That's the one that you showed at Camry Mash, right? Exactly. Right. The Betrayal. Right. The right betrayal. Which yeah. I ultimately got uh, nominated for. And I got an Academy Award nomination and I won the Primetime Emmy for it. Um, but that was only years and years later because... So I started doing this film, and in the process of my doing research, uh, I met this person whose name was Ellen Bruno, and she was working for the Cambodian Women's Association in New York, and I knew she knew a lot of people in Thailand. Make a long story short, um, I went to Thailand to go do some research and couldn't get into the Laotian refugee camp because the conditions were so bad. So I went into the Cambodian camp, and I ended up hanging out with all the traditional uh, medicine men. I found it so fascinating where they, the East met the West, where there were traditional medicine men working and you know, uh, diagnosing their tiger epilepsy and have all these potions sitting in front of them that look like green gook, and, and then dealing with the Western doctors. So the French had set up this program in the refugee camp, which for me, was a paradigm of, of how, you know, the Cambodians could be really treated because they don't have a traditional view of their bodies. So I came back, so I took a lot of pictures. I wasn't even filming at the time. I took a lot of pictures and did a lot of video recording, uh, a lot of audio recordings. I came back and I went to this person, Ellen, and I said, listen, let's make a film. I, I want to make an instructional film which would help the doctors to understand these people and how the worldview. So it was very much about worldview, and that's where my anthropology comes in. Of course. Of understanding people from the inside rather than putting my own opinions on it. So we ended up making this 
tape and it went all over the country. And two years later, uh, well, right after that, Ellen decided she wanted to go to film school because she wanted to become a filmmaker because of that. She went to Stanford. So she had to do her thesis film. And I said to her, why don't you go to Cambodia? If anybody could get into Cambodia, you could. Because at this time, it was 1985. And the war had ended. Pol Pot was still in Cambodia. And it was very dangerous. But I knew that she had worked on the border. She'd be able to get in. And it would be the first film crew inside the country since Pol Pot. So she took, she took my advice. She got permission. And as it turned out, I recommended the guy that I had been assisting for. Documentary filmmaker, uh, documentary cameraman, really great. And he was going to go. And I you know, wasn't going to go. I mean, she wasn't going to bring an assistant. So what ended up happening is three weeks before he, they were supposed to leave, he dropped out. And that's when I stepped up. And I said, look, I really, I want to do this. And she said, well, you've never filmed a documentary before. I said, well, yeah, I have. I've been filming my own film. I mean, you've seen that. And yeah, and but this, this is a real just documentary. Just free, hit freeze frame there. You, you had already, at this point, you had already studied at, at NYU, or this is, you'd already been through the program? Yeah. I mean, I, you were, you yeah, were in, I was still, I hadn't done my thesis project. But so you I were in the master's program at that time. No, I wasn't no. in the master's program because uh, I was just taking independent classes. You were taking classes at right, NYU. Right. But so you were studying at that time. Because I was working at the same time. So I was taking my classes whenever I could. So uh, I was supporting myself in New York. So I, you know, I didn't go to the regular program. I, right. I mean, I could have, but I decided not to. Right. So. And this happened while the, you were in there. All of exactly. I was in New York. I was working, and and I saw this opportunity because I knew the people. I I knew the Cambodians from when I lived in Providence. They lived in my neighborhood because I lived in a really bad part of it, uh, Providence after I graduated because I was working at a museum and. Um, and I knew really well the people there. And so I said, I know these people. I know I can do something meaningful. And she said, but you don't have a camera. <laughs> I said, well, okay. So then I called everybody I knew. I called all the people I knew in France because I had lived in France for a year. Uh, and as it turned out, fate would have it the next weekend. I was at a small gathering of some filmmakers and I was asking people I need to find a camera because at that time, you know, cameras weren't everywhere. I mean, to have a film camera was a very unusual thing. And people were, would have Rolexes. And you were getting a 16 camera that could shoot sync. And exactly. So it was like an Eclair probably or an Eclair NPR, ACL. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, at that time, the Arri SR2s had just come out. They were brand new. And so... Um, so I asked around, and, and somebody said, oh, go talk to that guy. He's an equipment broker. So I went over to him, and he says, well, yeah, well, as a matter of fact, I have a brand-new Aries R2, which a company had bought, and they only used three times because they went to one-inch video. So I asked everybody I could, my parents, my relatives, and I borrowed money, and I bought this camera. And that changed my life because I, I had the means to be able to film. So I went to Cambodia with, with Ellen. And I have to say, you know, it was really uh, a, quite a challenge for me because the second day we were there and we were very heavily monitored by the authorities. And I, I basically had to bribe the guy who was my, who was 
who was who was assigned to watch over me to make sure I wouldn't film bridges or any kind of security things. Because remember, this is a time where Cambodia is in a shambles. It, it was just, it was destroyed. And, and the Vietnamese were there and he was a Vietnamese operative. And, um, and they took us to the killing fields. And in a way, this was a propaganda move to show how the Vietnamese had saved Cambodia. So they took us to the killing fields and literally it was as if, I had just walked into Dith Prawn's life. You know, the, there were still holes all over the ground and you could see bits of, 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 of people's wardrobe and they had, you know, taken whatever bones they could find and put the shrine together. Oh my God. You know, so you have the skulls with pieces of, of cloth around their eyes and, and I thought to myself, oh, you know, I, I had my light meter and I didn't exactly know how to read it. And I thought, please, God, you know, just help me. I just don't want to fuck this up. I have to tell this story. It's so important to tell the story from my heart. And you're working uh, holding handheld, right? I mean, you know, handheld. Handheld and, and right. roving. And, and you have a sound mixer with you recording sound. And, we had a sound yeah. mixer, right. And yeah. I had, oh, she had brought an assistant who she knew from school, went to at Stanford. So we were a very small team, and I would go out. I would go out myself with a with a guy who was on one of those bicycles, and I would put on which was a kermal, which was one of the scarves, and I would I, before I would tell the minder, I would say, "Oh, I'm going in to take a nap," and then I would sneak out the back door and I would go out and film by myself, which was insanely dangerous. But you know, I would go out because I wanted to shoot things that they wouldn't let me shoot, and um, like verite moments, right on the street, verite moments where I was unmonitored. And, and I have to say, you know, it was, it was a, a trip that really stuck with me for a very long time because you feel the pathos and the resonance of the people we went to, the prison tool slang. We were one of the first people to go there. And, you know, there they had made it into a memorial, makeshift memorial, but it was still pretty much almost left the way it was when, when the Pol Pot left. And, I mean, I, from what I understand, it's very different now. But, I mean, it was so real when we were there. It's almost like they had just walked away from the torture. So you're shooting, you're shooting 400-foot loads and, and, and going out and, and, and capturing uh, uh, MOS secondary images and synchronous audio footage, with, with, uh, with, and you're doing uh, interviews and live verite and all of that. And the film is going from there somewhere, right? Is it getting shipped yeah. back to New York or to London or to a lab in well, Asia? Well, that was that's a really part of the story because yeah. when we, after well, while we were filming, we went to a hospital and um, we filmed we filmed some of these uh, victims who were part of this bombing, part of the Pol Pot bombing, and the Vietnamese government did not want to show what was happening inside of Cambodia, so we had to hide the film. And we were in a hotel, which was called the Samaki Hotel, and we were the only Americans there. There were only three Americans, and all the rest were Russians, right? Mm -hmm. So it was Russians, Vietnamese, and we had to hide the film so that they wouldn't come into the room when we were gone and steal it. So when we left the country, we were we really were on a prayer that we could leave with all of this footage that we took. Unbelievable. So then when we got back to Thailand, so all of their story, because uh. We went to Ellen's friend's house. We had it in two coolers. And uh, we decided we would go down to the south, 
for uh, to go to what it was called Cosumet, which was basically at that time, it's a big resort now, but at that time it was just, uh, you know, a beach and some huts. So she went down by bus and I was going down with the sound person by motorcycle. Right. So we get on this motorcycle and we start driving an hour and a half south of Bangkok. And we pass by the new Nike factory, which had just been built, the controversial one, which is making all of these low-cost sneakers. And three girls ran across the road. And we had, they ran right in front of us. And so the driver, my sound person, had no recourse but to slam on the brakes. And I went over the top of the bike. So, and so it was all... <laughs> So they thought that one of the girls had gotten hit when actually I had gone over the top of the bike. Um, long story short, I got taken to this clinic and then a hospital. They sewed me up. I mean, I was, you know, had lacerations everywhere. Um, we had to get the girl a CAT scan. They confiscated our passport to police until we made sure that this girl was okay. And I was like, of course, I'm going to make sure she's okay. But they took our passports and everything because they took the bag from me because I was, had been wounded. And then we got back to Bangkok like two and a half, three days later. So I walked into uh, Ellen's friend's ha uh, apartment and the maid who was there took one look at me and she said, oh my God, what happened to you? And I said, oh, I had a little accident. So I said, but I have to get my bandages changed. So we went to the little local hospital where the diplomats would go. And I had been there before we left because I had to send the sound person home with tonsillitis, so he had to go back to the States. So I walked yes, back right. into that hospital and the doctor, woman doctor, looks at me and she says, oh my God, what happened to you? And I said, oh, I had a little accident. And she goes, you know, lay down on the gurney. So I lay down on the gurney, they take me in, and it turns out I have septus. They immediately they rip out all of the stitches with no Nothing, no painkiller, no nothing. And they admit me into the ICU because I had septus. And oh I would God. have died if I hadn't gone there to get my passages changed. Anyway, I was in the hospital for two and, a half, two and a half weeks. I almost had to get skin grafts. I mean, this whole deal. And of course, I oh did not my tell my God. mother. <laughs> oh, my God. What but a story. But my worry was what happened to the film? <laughs> yeah. Because the film was sitting in a, a refrigerator in back in Bangkok. Okay. Right. So we took the film out. And of course, I had my leg in a cast and my arm in a cast because of oh, yeah, all so. the wounds that I had. So I was in a wheelchair and we were carrying this film. So I was carrying film on my lap. We had two coolers that we were carrying, that Ellen and the other person had to carry back. And so we got back and they sent it to Alpha Cine. Oh, wow. And... The film was fine. That's out at the one out west, though. That's in uh, in it was Seattle. Seattle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's, I think I think that's where Gus Van Zant used to work. Exactly. When, from when, that's where I did boy. Swoon. Oh, you actually. did. You worked out of there for Swoon. Swoon. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's where we we processed Swoon because they did black and white. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's so the right. only last story I want to tell about Cambodia that yeah. really affected me was that. One day we were driving along and there was a little girl who was who was on the side of the road and she was kind of half in, in a uh, rice paddy. And I go, stop, stop, stop. And I jump out of the van with the camera on my shoulder and I kneel down as if I'm going to shoot her, right? And all of a sudden she sees me, 
she drops down on her knees and puts her hands up like in a prayer, like, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. And it flipped me out. Of course. Because she thought the camera was a gun. She thought it was a bazooka or something. And I immediately put the camera down and I said, I can't shoot you. Oh, my God. And I was like, I put her down and I put Outrageous. my hands up like, don't worry, don't worry. And I, it, that freaked me out. And I thought, that is what war is all about. Absolutely. So now a little a little flip because you 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 were when you were at Brown it, I you I didn't know that you spent a little time at RISD did you do anything you did photo- I did I took classes at RISD was it film. all simultaneous while you were at Brown or or yes. the, yeah in tandem yeah yes that's actually how I came to photography because when I went to Brown um, I I had always wanted to go to art school but my parents were like you're not going to art school you need to get a liberal arts education or get an education. My father was an engineer. So I went to Brown. I was really interested in, in history, ancient history, languages, um, the ancient world. And so I studied, started studying Egyptology and the ancient world. And my second year, I discovered that I could take classes at RISD uh, because I had a cooperation with Brown and I could get credit for it. So I could take two classes a year. So I wanted to be a sculptor when I was a kid. So I tried to get into a sculpture class, and there was no room. So I took a photography class, and that hooked me. But the bug for that did not exist growing up in, in, in New Jersey as a kid, right? No, I wasn't you, you exposed to any that's photography. What I'm that's, what I'm, that's what I'm asking. Yeah. And, and, the, and, the, and the fascination with, with film or wanting to be a visual artist was not in your life before that before that turn that took place to study photography well, and well it was well, was be, yes yeah because my father used to build things all the time in the basement and I used to help him but I wanted to be a sculptor so I was always making things making things in yeah. the basement you know sculptural things I was constantly doing making things and so that's why when I got to RISD, you know, I was really interested in um, glass, blowing glass. And wow. there's a very famous glass blower who was there at the time teaching. His name is Del Chilley. And he was also giving classes, and I couldn't get into that class. So it was by fate that I couldn't get into these two classes. That, that you ended I, up as a visual artist. Yeah, I yeah. started in photography. And and you were not in Brown at the same time as Todd and Christine, who also went there, right? I was. You were, you I was were. before them. You were I'm a little a year older. Ahead of them. You're ahead of them. Yeah, because yeah. because I, when I I remember when I was talking with Christine, I didn't realize that both of you studied semiotics. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I studied semiotics in France. Oh, not oh, you didn't do that at Brown. No. Okay, okay, okay. Because uh, I went to France my, after that second year, after in photography, when I was totally in, I became really interested in the image and how meaning is created with the image. Like, why do some images have impact on you and others don't? You know, what is what is that all about? You know, how does that, what is that about perspective? What is that about, um, about the subtle uh, inner meanings, the, the kind of, the metaphors, the layers of meaning that go into an image or into a film at this point, you know, that impact you as a person or us as a people or what makes it universal what makes it personal did you take any film classes at brown uh no no 
No, there wasn't really any film classes. There was no semiotics no film, or no And no film history or any, any of that. Yeah, yeah. No, I took art history. Art history. And I took yeah. a lot of English classes. But there were no, there was no film classes. There was no semiotics department. So I went to France right. because a friend of mine told me about this program that had started in France, which was called the Centre Américain des Études Film which is the Center for the American Center for the Study of Film, right. which actually Brown it had was, a part of, which I didn't know. In, in Paris, the Sorbonne? Paris. Or where? Okay, yeah. Not part of the Sorbonne. It was part of the University of University Paris. University of Paris, okay. But it was a very small seminar-based program, so there were only about 15 of us or 12 of us in the program. And most of those people were master's and PhD students. I was, you know, an undergraduate or junior in, in university, and all of the classes were in French. So we were studying with the guys who were writing for Caillou du Cinema. Caillou du Cinema, right? yeah. Raymond yeah. Ballore. Um, I took a class. Lacan was very famous at the time. I took a, a class with Levi Strauss, believe oh, it or not, who oh was at the University of Paris. Wow. So it was a really interesting time. And it was when Beaubourg was just finished being built. So the Centre, Centre Pompidou, the, the Centre big, Pompidou. Yeah, beautiful. I was there when they were putting the stones in the plaza in front, right? And so I went to, there was a first photography gallery opened right in front of Pompidou, which was the Gallery Zabriskie. And I walked in there and I said, I want to work here. So here I was, I was working in this gallery. And, you know, there were original Diane Arbuses for three hundred dollars, you know, being you know being on shown exhibit. there, and yeah. I just just immersed myself in photography at the time. So I was very much about still image, but also in France, so much of what I studied was not the practical aspect of it. The, the, so much of what I studied was the the theoretical aspect of it. Was was Freud and that con? It's it's about. What's the real underlying layers of this, which still influences my work now when I think about, you know, what makes you uh, empathize with something? You know, I have a great deal of, uh, I shoot with my heart, so to speak. And so I'm always trying to understand what the emotion is and how I can best tell that story. Through yeah, and, and with and with, with, with Young, you have the, the symbols of... of the uh, uh, all of the 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 study of 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 symbol of the the male and the female and the and the archetypes right right yeah right which is which, that's which, pretty heady stuff yeah, yeah but when you get to just you know thinking about it less theoretically so to speak and you just you think about oh well you know this how can I make this more universal that people can relate to then that's where that starts to apply. Right. So I studied for a whole year in France, and I didn't travel like everybody else did when they go to Europe. I basically sat in a library for and an it, entire year. And immersed yourself. Yeah, yeah, because I had to speak French. I had to learn how to speak French fluently because all the classes were in French. That's so, amazing, wonderful. And, and had you, stu you hadn't studied French before that, or you had not really? Just minorly, bit. but, you know, you don't really learn until you go someplace. And, yeah. Yeah, and no, I, I grew up in Belgium yeah. as a kid, so we had to... Had to speak French there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah, how you know. Yeah, you know. hear yeah. it yeah. and you hear the intonation of the language. And so, anyway, so I got back to, to Brown the following year. And uh, so I, I heard that they had opened a semiotics department. 
And so I went to the professor who had started this program, the department, and I said to Silverman, I said, listen, um, I've, I've just studied with all the people who've written the books that you're using. I want to get credit for this. And I showed him all my papers and I showed him all my, you know, my recommendations. All your work, and yeah. so he gave me credit for that. So, I mean, because I had done a ton of work, you know, more than you would have needed to get a degree at Brown. So, so they gave me credit for that. And then I decided I would take social anthropology, not cultural anthropology. I was really interested in, in, in colonialism and the effect of colonialism on, on indigenous people, but also was really interested in, in how people relate and economically, you know, socialism and communism. I was really interested in, in, in social structures. So, I, I, you know, be, in thinking that I wanted to become a filmmaker by that time or photographer and filmmaker, I thought, you know, I need to know what this is about. I, I could just, I could study the craft of filmmaking and come out of school and not know anything what I want to say. So that's what I tell students. You know, I said, well, it's great to be able to study the craft of filmmaking. You can pick up a camera and shoot, but what is it you're going to say with that is what really counts. Yeah, no, you have to communicate exactly and, and, and be able to, uh, to experience uh, culture and, and traditions and, and, uh, and, and the emotion, right? Yeah. So... Um, you you've worked with with Rebecca with Spike with Michel Gondry, um, and there are so many stories to tell. But um, I w- I would love to hear you talk about, especially going back to when you first met Michelle and and got involved with him and working on Eternal Sunshine, which was the first the first was that the first film actually you did together, right? Yeah, that, Eternal was the first film that I did with Michelle, um, and I met Michelle through. Anthony Bregman, who's a producer that I've yeah. known for a long time here in New York. Um, and he called me up one day and he said, uh, you know, he said, Elena, well, now he does that in, in Michelle's accent. And he said, you know, what are you, what are you doing? And uh, I said, well, I just finished. I don't remember what film I was doing because I was shooting a lot of films at the time. And, um, and also on the side, working on that film that I had started. Because I hadn't, I hadn't given up that film. I couldn't finish the film at the time, because Laos was a completely closed country. It was communist. They wouldn't let me in. I couldn't get the material I wanted, and everybody's like, "Well, when are you going to finish that film?" And I was like, "I can't finish this film because I, I can't make the film I want to make." And you know, editors would try to get me to cut it in a very traditional documentary way, and I said, "I'm not doing it." You know, I'm not going to take all the words and cut the words together and put the images to the words. I'm not, that's illustrating it. I said, they have to work hand in hand. The images have to speak just as much as the words. And in fact, I almost wanted to make a film that had no words, but, you know, I wanted to tell the story. So I, I kept on working on the film on the side and going to film the family in Brooklyn. But at the same time, I was kept on just shooting a lot of films. And so when Anthony asked me about Michelle, um, I mentioned Michelle to my commercial agent, Robert, who's still my agent. And Robert was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I know Michelle Gondry's work really well. He does a lot of music videos. Yeah. And I had known some of his work, but I really went and looked at his work. And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, Michelle is very much about ideas and conceptual 
approaches to time and space. But he wasn't very interested in what it looked like. I mean, you know, some of the stuff looked like, oh, God, it looked like it shot on VHS. And I thought, ugh, you know, I was like, all right, I don't know if I want to work with this person. But so then I said, well, you know, I'll meet him. So I, we ended up meeting. You know, we went in and I brought some books of things that I thought would be interesting in terms of, you know, how to make Kate disappear. Because the whole story of Eternal, of her constantly eluding, you know, becoming erased and, and Jim trying to chase her, you know, I, came, I was thinking about different ideas about how we could do that and execute that. And so I met Michelle, and, um, and Michelle asked me to do the film. And so it was very interesting because he was really very, very concerned in the very beginning with the transitions, meaning the... the the, uh, the the technical, the the craft of how to get her to disappear, you know, the, the trying to f figure out ways in camera to make this happen. And I, I think we connected in many ways because very early on when I first came to New York, which was in the early 80s, I was really interested in experimental filmmaking. So I would go to places like the Collective for Living Cinema. Right. And different places that would show... The anthology. You know, the anthology film archives. Right. Which I think is still around. Still there. You know, Jonas Makis. Yeah. Yeah, Jonas Makis, who just died this past year. That's right. You know, who was doing really interesting conceptual kind of work. And I've always been interested in the conceptual. So... Stan um, Brackage, all those guys. Yeah, right? all yeah. of those guys. Yeah, experimenting right. with what is a film, you know, the... And so when, you know, coming to Michelle, I understood that a lot of what the kinds of things that he was playing with was, you know, the illusions of film, you know, the illusions of how to make something work. I mean, in, in, when film was first discovered, there were a lot of musician, uh, magicians who were using film to create their illusions. And so, you know, I, I was very interested in that, too. So we ended up talking a lot about um, that kind of thing. So... Always, uh, whenever I would do a film, I would say to the producers, I will only do this film if I can have the director for four days. Meaning, I want the, the director by myself for four days so I can talk about what the meaning of the film is. Because it's not only about the shots, it's about what the intention is behind what they want to say. So, so Michelle and I went to my, he came to my house for, for four days. And for the first three days, we talked about you know, these little gimmicks about how to do in-camera kinds of things and that kind of thing. And finally I said, on the fourth day, I said, Michelle, I said, we have to start talking about the story because we're only on page three. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's the important thing is that it goes hand in hand. So Eternal Sunshine was an interesting game, I would say, because we were constantly figuring out these riddles. And the way I approached it was, I thought, okay, I'm going to handhold both cameras. Because Michelle wanted to go in the direction that was completely opposite of human nature. So his first, his other film. So human nature was highly structured. The lighting was highly structured. It was all inside on the stage. It drove him crazy. So he wanted everything with Eternal to be organic. It would say organic. It has to be organic. And that scene on the on the beach, right? You know, at the bed, and yeah, it's like, right. oh my god.
Well, that's that's something about the illusion right. of when you're in memory. So when you're in, so that was the idea that we were we were playing with. When you're in your mind, you can go anywhere. You know, anything can happen. So juxtapositions can happen. Day turns into night, or you can find yourself. You know, you, like Kate looks around, and all of a sudden she's in bed in the beach. And so those are the kinds of things that we captured in terms of uh, the film actually was a pastiche. It was a metaphor for, it was meta. It was what it was. So we showed that 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 kind of sudden realization or that sudden jump to another reality. And that's what happens in your mind. So we could go anywhere. But, you know, I mean, we, we had to come up with an idea about how to show looking into the mind right so and have and, and getting that feeling right that giving the audience that journey right 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 so i came up with this idea that we need some sort of way to light it so that we could show we're in the mind and michelle so michelle and i uh, we we worked well together because he would show me something and then i would think of something so he showed me this one film clip of it was a French film, and it was of a car driving on a country road. And all of a sudden, the car makes a turn against this embankment. And I was like, okay, great, I get it. I said, you know what we need? We need to have a memory light. So we need to have, like, it's almost like when you look into the tunnel, it's like the light at the end of the tunnel, right? That's, that's where you only, in your mind, you don't see everything all the time. Sometimes you see selective things. So I said, why don't we use a light a selective light. So I was using different lights for the memory light, a bicycle light, sometimes a park hand outside, but it was a light that in a way was just showing certain parts of the image, like you only see certain parts of your mind. Right, so you were, you were able to, to effectively add and subtract in the frame by, 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 uh, by making the focus on the way that the light hit. Yeah, whatever yeah. you, wherever well, the light was, is whatever you, you were see. painting, painting the frame. Right. Yeah, yeah, with the light. Yeah, and it enabled me to be pretty loose too, because Michelle didn't want to use any film lights, so that was another challenge. You know, because again, he wanted to go completely in the opposite direction of human nature. So, I had lights. I I lit it. I mean, I had to hide lights everywhere so he wouldn't see them. You know, so I had little refrigerator bulbs and. You know, was hiding them behind lamps, and we cut holes into lampshades and things like that. So you know, to make to it all really to fun. make it all practical, right? As Almost, much as, as we much could. as you could, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And then, and then, I I think about, and when I think about experimental and what you did and pioneered, working uh, uh, with Spike on on Summer of Sam and uh, he got game and, and specifically summer of Sam with a cross processing, right. And, and, yeah. and creating, uh, the, 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 uh, being able to, to work with, uh, with, with going back and forth, right. Cause you did, was that all, was that all reversal? I can't even remember. No, it, was long as I, it was partly though. You just shot certain stuff yeah, that was cross processed. Yeah. yeah cross processed to great expense. Cause at that point, you know, reversal film and cross processing was expensive. But, you know, in the very beginning when we started prepping Summer of Sam, which was the summer of 1977, basically, um, you know, it was during the summer. And Spike goes, Ellen, I, I just wanted to look hot. 
I was like, okay. Uh, you know, and it's like, but I knew that do the right thing was also during a really hot summer. And when I looked at summer, uh, when I looked at do the right thing, I knew I didn't want to do the same thing as Ernie Dickerson did, who shot do the right thing, you know, and did a great job. But I, I knew I didn't want to follow Ernie. Uh, I wanted to create a new way of looking at it. And, and, and this is before Spike worked with uh, Malik on, on uh, Girl 6 and Clockers, right? Post-Clockers. was post-Clockers. This is right after Clockers. Right, which so, is, so Malik, which, which was already using uh, reversal and cross-processing, exactly, right? Exactly. So Malik and Spike had come up with, with the cross-processing, which yes. was brilliant. Yes. And, and that's first how I came into it. So, of course, you know, I was like, ooh, this looks really cool. Because at that point, we were not, uh, we d- weren't doing any kind of digital intermediate. No. This is way before digital intermediate. I, I was in, I was this in, was I was in, all the, in film. So I was in the you, lab watching the dailies yeah. with Joey V. So, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I, I mean, you had to, was, whatever you got in film was what you got, yeah. right? Prince so being you, made. Yeah. So you had to, you had to think about, you know, how are you going to do that? I mean, some cinematographers would, you know, put their film in the oven and cook it and that kind of Bob thing Richardson. or, yeah. you know, whatever you're going to do. So actually, I I thought, uh, Summer of Sam, and I remember those summers in New York, in the summertime, in August, it is humid. And it's so humid that the air is so heavy. That, to me, is New York. So I I thought, I'm going to make it feel humid. So that's what I did. So I had to, instead of making the blacks really black, I had to make them really milky. And, you know, of course, in cinematography, it was like, oh, you can't make your blacks milky. And I was like well, watch me, because that's the way reality is. So Joey V and I uh, did a bunch of tests on how we could fog the film either after shooting or before shooting because I tried to do it in camera, and I couldn't do it because there's a device where you'd put it in front of the lens, um, which was... Cataflex? Uh, what was it called? Lightflex, yeah. Lightflex. Yeah. And yeah, where, you would, where it would flash the negative... Inside the camera, it would yeah, it would be in front of the camera. It was like a filter, and there would be a light that would go through the filter. Right, but because we were doing a lot of nights, we had six weeks of nights. And flashing, I do flashing that. just to go into it, it lowers the contrast. Right, right, which was right. where you guys were going with the well, test. Yeah, but I didn't know that yet. I had yeah. to do the test first with the filter in front of it, because then I could see whenever a car headlight would hit the filter, I would see four lights going through the filter, and I didn't want that. So that's when I went to flashing. And so we pre-flashed the film. So we, Joey V would pre-flash everything in the lab and then give us the film, which is already partially exposed so that it would make the blacks. No, I remember, well, I mean, you know, I was working with him in the lab at yeah. that time, and I would actually yeah. go into high speed and watch the prints come through at the uh, at the end of every shooting day. And the amount of testing that took place and the amount of experimentation and what in that era, which is to me, you know, a, a, a time in my life that I, I, I cherish because I was watching you and, and other artists uh, uh, work uh, with, with testing, uh, with the, the, the support of, uh, of a place like Technicolor and, yeah. and Joey to be able to work creatively um, and to and to uh, uh, prepare 
for what you would do through a series of, of, of photochemical tests that you would do before shooting to come up with that exact look that you were going for. And, 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 and it was a bit of a mad science race to start off with because you had to get to that percentage of flashing and the exposure and have it just right. Right. And and that's why testing, we would test so much more back then. Yeah. But, but also, you know, every morning when I would be on my way to set in the morning, which was early because Spike was an early bird, I'd have to be on, on set in the Bronx at 5.15. So at 4.30 in the morning, I was on the phone with Joey V., uh, Joey V, for those of you who don't know him, uh, Joey, Joey jo- Violante jo- was a Violante. legend over at my, my old Technico. Side, my old colleague. Exactly. Yeah. And you guys would be up at the crack of dawn and watching the film as it came out. And um, and so I'd be on the phone with him asking him, um, you know, was the negative exposed all right? And and, and he would oversee, you know, the, what was called the timing, which is how the colors, you know, what what colors were at play in the film? So and, they would and, add and, red and, and, or and add the, yellow. And the timing lights right. uh, also indicated exposure. Correct. And, uh, and, and you had printer points from zero to 60. And, you, and, and when you were up in the, in the 30s, a little bit overexposed above mid-25, mid, mid 25, right? right. And, and you were able to know where you had landed by getting the lights and then also getting his report back. Right, exactly. Every single day. Yeah. Exactly. Every single morning, talk to him, you know. And so one one morning he called me. And this is, you know, I mean, cell phones. This is, when did we shoot summer sound? 1998. Mm-hmm. So one morning I get a call from Joey V at like four in the morning. I'd just gotten up after going to bed at 11. Because we would have, we would go watch dailies every night until 11. Which I mean, was, was such was a great a, tradition to watch yeah. projected film, yes. right? I mean, yes. yeah. yeah. Yeah, we would watch The print. We would watch it every every night the entire crew, the key personnel on the crew. With the, the direct, head of with wardrobe, Spike. the head of makeup, Spike, the gaffer, the camera assistants, the focus pullers. Everybody would go to watch the film together to see the work that they had done the day before to evaluate you know, what was going on, that light was too hot, or that person missed the focus. And it would be a gathering, and it would be, you know, we we were a family, you know, very much a family kind of thing. And you were able to communicate about the day together and sitting together. It wasn't people looking at dailies on their iPhones or any of that stuff. People were was a community of people talking about the work from the day before, yes. projected in full screen, full film screen right. in in the lab at that time in the exactly. theater. Exactly. Yeah. So I remember being a young cinematographer and being terrified, you know, that you know that you screw it up and that and everybody is there to watch, but. But, you know, most of the time, I mean, you get past the first few days and then everybody's together. It's exactly that. It was a community. And, you know, the film community is still a community. But it, I think everybody who remembers that time misses that time. It was a time when, um, you know, you have a bunch of artists who come together and everybody is problem solving together. Now it's, it's so much more separated. Right, because people are looking at things alone yeah. and then talking the next day you don't you don't you don't really convene in a in a 
digital projection screening room to sit with the director or like you did with film projection looking at stuff well the reason why we don't do that anymore is because there's no time and that's another thing that has really changed in film production is that you know that that we're working longer hours much longer hours uh the producers are trying to get much more out of the crew um i have to say it's become less enjoyable for a lot of the people in the film industry because now, you know, the schedules are unrealistic. And especially, I mean, in episodic, they're expecting people to, in 10 days of shooting, to come up with these movies and to do things that, you know, they came up where there was a 10-day, an 8-day uh, normal shooting schedule for... For an hour, for, this is for an hour long. For television shows, but that was when it was on one set... And the set wouldn't change and just the words would change. So now, you know, we're doing things where they're exploding cars and we're changing locations and we have stunts and you have special effects and you have this and you have that. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's getting to a point where, uh, you know, it's it's overflowing. And, you know, I, what do I call the semantics of television production where... You know, now they don't want to say that they're doing more than 10 days because they don't want to set a precedent. So in doing that, they'll add a splinter day or, you know, a splinter unit or a tandem unit or that kind of thing. And so, you know, I'm just standing back and watching to see when it's going to tip over. It's becoming, you know, to the point where it's dangerous. You know, we're doing too many hours. And so that community feeling is lost now. It's no longer about the making of film it's about how much can you get done for the money in a day exactly Let, let's rewind the clock back to a gentler time uh, <laughs> uh not not necessarily all the way back to uh to when you shot angela which of course i remember with rebecca and then films after but i wanted to hit something i mean i i, I have great memories of Ballad of jack and rose because i remember being in the room when you were color correcting with joe on that and 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 all of the 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 progress that was made during production and watching it happen, but but personal velocity was a bit of a marker for me in the film era because it was with Indigent, and Indigent mm-hmm. was going against the tide and capturing everything on DV cam at the time. It wasn't even HD, am I right? No, it wasn't even HD. It was it standard, wasn't even digital. It was sta- standard def tape, right? It wasn't, it was, yeah, it was, it was not H, it was not HD. No, it was, it wasn't even, no, no. It was, Far, I think, HD was, I don't even know if HD was around then. And they shot, I think it was, was it, were you shooting 25 frame PAL or how were you doing yeah. it back then? These were so, little, they yeah. were little amateur cameras. Right. Right. So if I remember, they're the PD 150s. Right. Right. So they were small and that was, little and handy that was, cams. And that was the mandate at the time because this was, this was indigent. Right. And then later on there was a company called HDNet, which was much beyond that, where everything was a mandate to shoot in HD, and that was the Mark Cuban company um, that was a totally separate entity. But this was Indigent, that was sort of part of uh, the IFC thing, and were, were right, and, and, and Jake Abram, Gary Winnick, and it was a uh, it was a uh, it was a time where it was an I would call it an early disruptor. To, to film. It was like film had not gotten a shot in the arm because people were shooting film, but it was uh, a statement being made that you could work creatively 
and use this tool at the time that uh, there, the, there was a huge amount of film still being shot. Well, part of the thing right was about, about quality. Right. Of, you know, the quality of film. Like everybody would say, would see the legitimacy of a film if it was shot in thirty-five or even in sixteen. So right. the quality of the film was the barometer for how it rated as a film. And Indigent, which was short for Independent Digital Entertainment, was cooked up by uh, Gary. Gary Winnick. Right. Um, the late Gary Winnick. The late Gary Winnick, yep, who um, came up with this idea that, you know, sometimes, you know, artists want to just make stories. And, you know, so let's use the video medium, even if it doesn't, isn't the best, at least you're getting your story down. So he created this, this, uh, this group, and part of the, uh, the idea was that let's give some actors who want to direct the opportunity to direct. Like they wouldn't normally have the money or the opportunity to direct. So they said, all right, you have to use the, they bought two PD-150s, which are little amateur cameras, right? And they said, we'll give you $150,000. Right, low budget filmmaking. And these two cameras, and, and then you can go out and make a film, you know? So they went to Rebecca Miller, who is the daughter of Arthur Miller and Inga Marath, the photographer. And uh, Rebecca and I had made a film on film together called Angela, Angela, right, which I won the Cinematography Award for at Sundance the second time. That's 1995. This is is back a ways, yeah. Yeah, actually, 95. Yeah, yeah. 95, yeah. Yeah, 95. So um, so Rebecca came to me and she said, um, listen, you know, I, I, I want to make this film. I wrote the script. Um, the only thing is that we have to use it. We have to shoot it in digital, and we only have $150,000. I was like, okay. You know, and, and back then, I think it was much more common, and even now, I think, you know, for cinematographers to have long relationships with their directors, like yes. Sven Nykvist, and Bergman. And Bergman, yeah. You know, the Robbie Mueller, Vim Vendors. So, you know, there was, and, and I had that relationship very much with Rebecca. With Rebecca. You know, of, you know, we we could, you know, we, we didn't have to talk very much. We could understand what each other were thinking. And so, um, you know, obviously I wanted to work with Rebecca again. And I was like, well, why don't we shoot it in Super 16? Right. Uh, I, you know, I'll work for free. Let's just shoot it in Super 16. Like, I did not want to shoot something in video. With the PD-150. With the PD-150, which was smush. Right. Now, let's go back a step because I had already shot Bamboozled with Spike. Right. right. That's right. So I already had shot Bamboozled. And How, what was that shot The on? thing, I, it, the VX-1000s. Right? That was a pa- Panasonic. That yeah. was Panasonic 1000s, right? Yeah. Yes. The X1000, yeah. And, but, you know, those cameras, again, amateur cameras, you know, just consumer cameras that people would, you know, shoot home videos on. Right, because this is all before the, before the, 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 before the digital development that had taken place to capture, to capture the, high resolution. Right, yeah. so you're looking at little baby tapes, and the problem with the VX1000s is that uh, the lenses weren't resolving well. So the reason why people value lenses is because 
of the way they're able to resolve detail. So on these lenses, if I went wide angle, it looked like it was out of focus, but it's just that the lens was like plastic. You know, it looked like looking through plexiglass than looking through glass. So I was really not a fan of shooting, shooting personal velocity on digital. And, and she said, well, that's the way it is. I mean, we have to. So I thought, all right, I have to swallow my pride a little bit. And I said, all right, I said, uh, right. So this is the way I'm going to think about this. This is what I said to myself. I thought, Rebecca wrote this script. It's three short stories, right? Personal velocities, three short stories about three women. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to approach it like a short story. I'm not going to place the same expectations on this as I would a novel, right? A short story is a short story, and that's what it is. It is its own thing. And so I thought, I'm going to approach it with the same attitude. This is its own thing. I'm going to treat it like its own thing. And I'm not going to place expectations that it's going to be like some 35-millimeter film. It's just not. Right? Three short films. So three short films using a camera that I felt was compromised already. So I'm just, you know, I'm just going to accept that as a compromise. So then I went, decided, all right, you know, how am I going to shoot this, right? Because I had had lessons from Bamboozled about what the pitfalls are of shooting with these kind of cameras. So I said to Rebecca, okay, I'm not going to do any wide-angle shots. Sorry, I'm not doing them. I said, if we're going to do them, I have to do them on longer lenses and get back all the way. So because the longer end of the film of the, of the lens was always better. She said, okay. And I said, and also, I'm not shooting in any bright sunlight because the cameras also couldn't handle contrast. Right, and right, yeah, right. And, and also, I would imagine the the the, the lights would would blow out a portion of the frame. Right, we, the highlights would have hyperluminance. Right, correct, because right. it's called dynamic range. So the dynamic range was very small. So you know, and the highlights once they would blow out, they they would just start becoming yellow and they start artifacting which is really disgusting exactly and not and not to freeze frame on that for a moment but all of these projects correct me if i'm wrong when you went through the process ultimately you finish them and then you output to 35 correct these were all made as prints right, in the exactly. end right which is so so did you get a ch i can't <laughs> remember i can't remember because i was but i remember being around did you get a chance to test the outputs to film before you finished shooting? Uh, yes, I did that because I knew, you know, as a cinematographer, that you, you don't only take care of, you know, the immediate film. You have to take care of what the end product is. So you have to scrupulously test for your end product. You know, what's your print stock? What is it? What's your, what is the print stock? What is the negative going to be from that? So you can make multiple copies. So you have to consider all of that all the way down the line. I mean, I used to go and look at dupe prints, pr print off the dupe neg to make sure that they were correct because, you know, there was that's so going to be the of, theatrical print in the end. Correct. Exactly. That, yeah. That's what people would see. So and I had to, you know, maintain control over that. So anyway, so I tested for that. And interestingly, um, I decided that, you know, people were giving me recommendations. They would say, oh, well. If you're going to shoot, you know, you have to use the, the full chip and you have to use these anamorphic adapters with the chip, which 
by the way, you had to change if you were going from one focal length to the other. You'd have to put this attachment on the lens. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I was like, I'm not doing that. That's and one more thing to distract me from what I'm doing. And you composed one eight one eight five, 185, right? Was uh, was theatrical yeah. 185, yeah. Theatrical 185, mm-hmm. yeah. right. So I thought, I'm not doing that because it's, I'm not, I need to look at the monitor. I'm not going to do one more thing on top of this. I'm just not. I was like, it's already compromised medium. I'm just going to do what it is. So then I, I, the other thing I said is because the fo- you couldn't see the focus on these little monitors on the flip-out screens. I mean, we're talking about a one-by-two mo- monitor, if that. I mean, nobody's eyes are that good, and nobody can see them. I mean, that was the big challenge with digital when it came out, is the focus, right? And it, this is before digital, so it was the fo- how can you see the focus on these tiny little monitors? So I said, okay, that's the other thing I'm gonna, my other rule is that we have to focus on, on I have to have a monitor a regular monitor next to this camera at all times. So I'd have a 13-inch monitor that I would drag around with me in the car, on set, and most of the time I was never looking at the action. I was operating while looking at the monitor. So the so monitor, you were ca- I had to focus. So you were camera operating, and looking at the monitor, not looking, yeah, Correct. through a viewfinder. Correct, yeah. at a separate monitor, not <laughs> on this little screen. And I was focusing because the other thing on these cameras is that you don't have a focus puller. You have to focus. You have to manual. Ma- you have manual focus. Yeah, because yeah. there's no there's no markings on the lenses. You have to focus. In, you know, you have to feel the focus, right? And digital focus, those electronic focus difference between digital focus and electronic focus. They were electronic lenses, so you have to focus electronically, which is... And you have to you have to different. turn off anything that could happen automatically because you were doing all manual focus, Correct. of course, yeah. Correct. Right. And turn off everything, you know, like, you know, the the light, you know, if you, the iris. Right. Everything had to be manual. Everything had to be manual, right. yeah. And so the other thing I did was I put film filters on these little cameras because I, I tricked the white balance I was constantly tricking the white balance to think it was one thing when it was another thing. And then I would put film filters on it to override it because I wanted to change it. Because I realized that I may not have an opportunity to to do any post on this because I had no money. So I thought I had to get the look in the camera as best I could. That was the other question I was going to ask you back then. The I, If my memory serves... You you didn't get a chance to color correct digitally before outputting to film. You answer printed film after you outputted from what the from the, the the tape or or did you do a color? You did it. You did a grade prior to that and then output. Correct. I did. I was yeah. able to finally do a digital, color correction right. on the tape. On the tape. Yeah. It was on the tape. Remember, right. this is not digital, so it's an right. analog tape. Yes. Yeah, so you were that I did the. I was able to change some of the color. You were able to. I think right. it was a tape house at the time or something. Yeah, was that was, was that Joe. with was with Joe? Joe yeah. 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 So. So going back to testing for the output, so the for the blow up, because at this time it was very very early on that uh, that we were taking tape, original tape, and putting it on back onto film, because it was it was you know a, uh, a tape to film out, which was just it, the technology was just being developed. Yeah, and I did one of the first tape to film outs with. A film I did was Spike called Jim Brown, All American. Right. Right. So 
I had already experienced what it was, but, and also on Bamboozled, where it was one of the first film to tape film out. Tape, tape the film out, yeah. It was done yeah. at Swiss Effects in Switzerland. That's right. right. Swiss Effects was doing it back then. I remember right. those guys. So that was, and that was really rudimentary. It was in a tiny little back room of a film lab in Switzerland outside of Zurich. Right. Anyway, that's a whole other that's story. That's a whole other story. But anyway, story. so yeah. now by this time, the Danes were doing film out. So one of the things that technically is that there's this thing called the shutter, right? So in PAL, you would have the shutter would be at 125th. Right. right? Or 150th. Right, of course. Nominally in NTSC at 160th, right? So everybody would shoot at 150th because then you get two fields per image or whatever it is, right? And I, I looked at 150th and I thought, yuck. This feels like video. I just hated it. So I started playing around with the shutter, and I went to 125th, and I was like, oh, this is much smoother. So it was like almost like 25p, like progressive frames. It, almost, but they didn't have progressive at the time. Right, but did, that didn't exist, right. right. But right. but PAL uh, was set for 20, 25. And, right. and, and, and No, it was set for 150th. For 150th, and then, it was yeah. 25 and frames se- per second, per second so yeah. to speak, but yeah. 150th of a shutter. And NTSC was 30 right. for 60, right. Correct. Yeah, right, so exactly. So I decided yeah, yeah. to shoot it at... 125th of a shutter, which everybody thought was blasphemy. So I sent it off to these different labs to check it. And the lab, which was considered the best, I guess it was in Denmark, sends, you know, calls me back up and they're like, why do you want to do this? You know, you're only getting one field and you have to double the amount of information in order to, you know, do the film out. And I was like, well, then we'll just double the information. And he said, but it's not the same information. You get more, you know, you're getting more detail. I go, how much more detail are we talking? I mean, we're talking such a minuscule amount of detail. It's not worth feeling the, I I want it. It's the 125th slowed it down so slightly. It felt more cinematic to me than filmic. And they're like, you're crazy. And I was like, call me crazy. I'm going to do it. Right. So after all of this, after I, trick the white balance, I put film filters on it, I I do the 16 by 9 framing in the camera because I don't want to be distracted by all the other bullshit. And I finish the film with Rebecca, we do the grade, we finish it, we send it to Sundance, and then it wins the best cinematography at Sundance. Crazy. Right. Right? And this is this is like and competing against all these other projects, all film. of them shot on film. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So I had to laugh because everybody said to me, you know, they they like, oh, it's so beautiful. How did you how did you do that? How did you make it? And I said because I didn't listen to anybody, right? I mean, it really said to me, you know, I followed my intuition. I followed the, you know, I was looking for what the how it felt, rather than going according to what I should do, quote unquote. And and that's what I've always done that, you know, and I think that's lent a lot of success to my career yeah is to follow the little voice on my shoulder you know right right and 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 going back in time i mean you i mean i we couldn't even go through your whole world of terrence malick jim jarmusch sam mendes jonathan demi all the people that you've worked with but i'd i'd like to go into a film that i remember that you shot with with uh for jim uh, uh coffee and cigarettes and Talk a little bit about that because that one I remember 
a, a little bit about what the producers went through and what it went through in distribution, because I believe uh, uh, Jason uh, Cleo was mm -hmm. involved, and uh, and there was some complexity of dealing with making a black and white print in the end and all oh, of that, yeah. and and right. whether or not to print a color stock or not. There was a Kodak, there were Kodak issues, and you had a journey to make this absolutely cool film uh, as a as a black and white finish. Can you talk about uh, what it was like making uh, that film with, with Jim? Well, I, I was really excited to work with Jim because, you know, we come from the same world in New York and um, uh, he, you know, came to me through a friend of mine. He had known about Swoon for many years. And so um, I was really excited to shoot black and white again because you know, we in Swoon we shot black and white negative, and we printed on black and white print stock, which was really one of your first big independents, right? Swoon was right, yeah, yeah. yeah it was yeah. it was, it was the, kind of the film that the people came to know me about. Besides Samsara, Samsara actually that film in Cambodia, right, won twenty five international awards, right. I won the Student Academy Award for it, right, and and so you know that was kind of a, a film that people Breakout. started to know me, but Swoon was the first time I ever did anything dramatic, and it was the first time I ever shot black and white. I mean, and I then you worked with and you worked with Tom Kalen on a mul multiple times, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah right and after right that, after that yeah. yeah, we did Jeffrey Bean in right. black and white, again. right? So, you know, I knew about uh, how to shoot black and white, and because again, I I followed a different tact. You know, I wasn't exposing for the shadows. I was exposing for the highlights in black and white. And everybody had done differently. Also, through the blow-up process, I learned blowing up treated the, the blacks start to be treated differently and the whites start to highlight and it's in a really beautiful way. And you shot in black and white 16-millimeter negative, right? In swoon, yes. In, in because swoon. we were using, we had no money. We Everybody was getting $100 a day from the PAs to everybody. And that was shot not, at that time, not super 16 single perf, but shot double perforated 16. Correct. It was and my then, personal Ari SR2 that I had bought before I went to Ca to Cambodia. And I used two lenses. And was it composed 4.3? I, I can't remember. Was that, that was composed no, at 185? No, 133. 133. So you did, you did do 13. Yeah, 133. And yeah. then we had to, we, we, because we didn't know it was become a movie. We thought it was going to be an art film. Right, so you shot it. You shot it with the one three three aspect ratio uh, for 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 what would be a four by three delivery. Yeah, Correct. TV, yeah. And then we had to go back, and we had to do. We had uh, they didn't have pan and scan at the time because there was no video. I mean, there was, you know, that didn't exist back then. We 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 did an optical. Yeah, you had to do an optical blow up. Correct. Right. I remember. I remember I the guys that did it. I don't remember who did Swoon, but I, I knew the people at the time: John Alanya yeah. in the Effects House, and uh, Mo Weissman at Eastern Optical Effects, and right. I, I can't even remember. I Balaj Nayari at Cineric. You know, all these guys did that so we stuff. We did this at Alpha Cine. So at Alpha Cine in Seattle. Seattle did Swoon, right? So anyway, going back to coffee and cigarettes. Coffee and cigarettes. Yeah. We were not shooting with regular sixteen at that point. I think we shot it on um, 35. I you shot that on 35, right? yeah. And um, so, but, you know, again, brought the same approach in terms of black and white and shooting black and white. But 
But you're right that the big question afterwards was how to release it at the release the film theatrically on on print, make, making release prints because they were not they weren't printing on black and white print stock anymore. That's correct. So the print stock and uh, really makes a difference in what the finished product is. Of so of course, Jim, and uh, you know, was very adamant because. Printing on black and white was a, a pure way to print black and white negative, right? So when you go to color, I mean, at the color, you have to make the black the black and the white with color. And as we know, you know, white is all the colors. And so you have to find the right balance for it to feel like yeah, black it's, and it's white. Hard. I mean, it's hard to there, – there are many projects that have, that, have, that have integrated black and white sections, and you would have to find a way – to nail perfect balance without a hue uh, or a cast over it, either either a cyan blue or or a warm cast that would go over it, but you but to create a natively pure black and white image on on a, a color stock, very very it's a it's there's a tiny sweet spot for that exactly. And yeah. you know, Jim had come from Stranger Than Paradise, right. which of course was shot on black and white, black and white, of course. negative printed on black and white stock yes so so you know we everybody you know in the film world when we were in the film world and then when things went digital but you still had to print so when we were still projecting films in the theater yeah everybody still had to consider what the print stock was and that's correct so i raised hell when kodak changed the print stock in the middle of summer of sam so i don't know if you remember that. i do but so well, I, there was there was vision and premiere, and there were different correct. there were different color stocks, yeah. Right. And you, yeah, and you, um, I, 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 my, please jog my memory on where what where you were in the transition for that. Oh, I was yeah. I was beside myself because, so I, um, when we were shooting Summer of Sam, you know, I had, I was shooting for a certain print stock, so cinematographers would. You shoot on negative, but you would know what your print stock would bear. So, so if you were going to go to Premiere, it would have to be, you would want to release print in Premiere. Right. Right. But what that means technically is that, so the blacks had a certain density and, and the colors had a certain density. So you would shoot for that. So I would know that it's a very contrasty film stock. So I need to put more light in the shadows so that when I print it, I can actually see the detail. But so in the middle of Summer of Sam, what happened is that Kodak, because Seven had come out and Darius Kanji had shot Seven and made it very, very contrasty and everybody loved it, Kodak decides, oh, we're going to change the print stock and we're going to make it much more contrasty. And I flipped out. I was like, wait a minute, because I was in the middle of shooting Summer of Sam and all of a sudden they're going to change the print stock and all of a sudden I have to change. It would change everything, everything that I was doing. I mean, I couldn't stop in the middle because if I stopped in the middle, I mean, half of the film would be too contrasty and it wouldn't it wouldn't be the same movie and it changes it changes the whole movie. So so I called up Joey V at Tech, Tech and Color and I said to Joey V, Joey V, uh what was it? Was it 608? What was the name of the print stock? I can't remember. 806 or 608. Anyway, there's a certain print Started stock. Started with the number 52. 52. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then, yeah, 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 because of the 35. So I said to him, I said, I want you to take as much of that film stock that you still have left, and I want you to put it aside for me. 
because I need to when I do my final prints, I need that print stock. Right, that's and what and I'm use. and in the theatrical world, when 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 we would print, the first exhibition prints were called show prints, and the show prints were for the premiere, and they were for the top urban market locations, and then and then the volume release would go out on on the stock of choice from the distributor, which one would hope would would be the stock that you wanted creatively. But back in the day, there were opportunities to print on Agfa. There were opportunities to print on Fuji and on on more than one Kodak type stock. Right, yeah. the cheaper stocks right. or whatever. You right. know, obviously, they could, the cheaper. So what ended up happening is that I... Um, so... Because I knew that when I wanted to make my what was called answer prints, yes. which would be when I would finally we'd cut the negative together and then you would make a print, and I would have to work with the film timer to decide what the final look is going to be. And you'd have to what change colors, make the whether changes. Whether it's going to be warmer yeah. or cooler, each each every shot had to be separately timed. So while the film was running, so you'd have to do it really quickly when the film was running. It was real art. So. He saved the print stock for me, and when I printed, well, first of all, the first answer print I got back, I was like, uh, I was like, okay, we have to print everything up because remember, everybody would think of printing down the blocks, so I had to bring everything up because I was trying to make it look like it was a summer, it was humid, so right. I wanted the blacks to be up. So, so you that wanted, was the first so you thing. wanted to raise the raise the luminance, right. raise the brightness. So right. yeah, right. So. So then we printed on the stock that I wanted, and we got the look that I wanted. And Joey V and I got the film to a place that was really beautiful. And so then we had to go to the release prints. And well, you'd have to make an interpositive first once you were finished with the answer print. Correct. And, uh, and, and then, an internegative. And then an internegative, and then right. you'd make prints off the internegative. Fortunately, the show prints, uh, uh, when a distributor was kind enough, could be made for the premiere off of the original to the stock of choice, in theory. Right. I don't know what happened. I, you, you tell me well, the rest of the story. I, well, you know, we only had enough stock to for a few prints. So, so Disney was releasing the film, and Disney right. had a deal with Kodak, and basically it was that they, you know, they had a deal where Disney, all Disney prints would be Kodak, and I said to them, I'm not, I'm not printing on Kodak because the Kodak's print stock is too dark i'm gonna print on fuji and they flipped out they said no way you're not printing on fuji and obviously at this time it was a really big competition between kodak and fuji fuji was not very popular at the time but it was starting to be because the print stock was really interesting so i was like i was becoming the renegade and i was like i'm not printing on kodak i'm gonna print on fuji and i told spike i said spike they're gonna try and make me do this i'm not doing it and and he's totally supported me, but here I was. I had the entire studio. You were fighting. You were fighting. You, fight, you were fighting the studio's contract with Kodak. Correct. So, <laughs> so I went to L.A. and I went to L.A. and um, probably ended I said, up at all right, Tactico. I got to go to L.A. because and and I said, okay. Uh, they said, oh, it's it's the same, it's the same, and I go, it's not the same. Uh, it's just, it's not the same. I said the F Fuji print is much better because it's less contrasty, and that's the look I'm looking for. The Kodak print stock is too too contrasty at the time, and and they were like, no, it's the same. I go fine. I said I'll show you. So I invited all the suits into the screening room, 
I can't believe I did this. I was yeah. the only girl. 20 guys in suits from Disney. I love this. This is great. So and I'm like, okay. You know, so I get in there and I'm like, okay. I go, um, I totally hear what you guys say. I said, but let's let's look at it. And so I said to the projectionist, I said, I want you to run it side by side. I, and I said, okay. Which, of course, they could do because they had the lens set up to go onto Correct. the screen. And yeah. they knew they could do side by side. So I said, okay, so now... I want you to run on the on the the left side. I said the film that I have time. This is the look that I want. Okay, and I said on the right side, I want you to run the Kodak print that they've made off of this, so we can see it. And I and I said to the guys, okay, so you tell me if it's the same. I said, ready? Okay, good. So we ran the, the film for like five minutes, and I stop it, and I the lights go on, and I'm like. So, what do you guys think? And they go, it's not the same. I was like, okay, great. So, now where do we go? I said, let me run the Fuji print. They ran the Fuji print. And I said, so? And they're like, you're right. It's it's very close. And I said, yeah. So, that's why I want to do it on the Fuji print. And, And they're like, well, we can't. Because yeah, they, they had a contract have a obligation, contract. yeah. Right. Right. And I'm like, well, the artistic versus your obligation, the art versus commerce here, guys. Right? And they laughed. Yeah. And I said, so what are we going to do? And so that's when you have your technical guys. The film timer came and said to me, he goes, well, this is what I could suggest. Why don't we flash the internegative and and bring up the blacks, and then we could. You so you know, would the lower. You would lo- so you would lower the contrast. Lower the contrast by on flashing. the negative right. by bringing up the shadow areas, and then we can also, you know, we can we can also flash the print stock, and we could see which one works better. And that's what we did, and so we came to a compromise. But I have to say, and you was, had to get there with with Kodak stock. But you found a photochemical solution by flashing the. I'm, I'm assuming the inner negative because exactly. the print would have been a disaster exactly. to run release prints. Right. I know than the, the factory of it all. Yeah. And all those guys came to me and they said, "Listen, we really appreciate your way of doing this because you didn't scream and you. I could have thrown a temper tantrum, but it's not my way. I'm more like, let's show you first, so you, then you agree, and then let's figure it out. You know, so." So that's always been my way, too. I don't throw temper tantrums. I don't believe in it. I don't believe in screaming at people. I don't think it gets you anywhere. And I don't believe in being an asshole on set or off of set. I really don't think it makes you a better filmmaker. No, 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 no. You're, yeah. you're, well, the way you managed it was so perfect because uh, it, it was the, the proof is in what you see. Right, It's like, exactly. you know, what, what's, uh, there's no argument in that. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. Um, Back to uh, uh, we 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 did a little sidetrack with Spike because we love that, but back to coffee and 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 cigarettes again, and the black and white and all of that because that was a, that was a real challenge to to go through that process. Do you remember the story of how that how that went through in the end? Because I think in the end they had to fight that too to make that work, right? Right, right. Because I yeah. think that I think in the end they bought black and white stock to print. And then it didn't work out, and then they had to run it on color print stock and make it look 
as good as they as they could and as balanced as they could as a black and white image from what would have been probably I'm guessing a color in or negative made through the black and white answer print process. Exactly. Yeah. So they had to apply a different process to it to get it closer to black and white. So that right. was the thing. And that you know when we think back to that time you know, because we were in the photochemical world, we had to do things physically. It was a physical process, you know, as opposed to now, which is digital, which is, you know, it's crazy to think how far we've come in such a short amount of time. Yeah. You know, the digital process allows us to work within the image. You know, when we were in photochemical and physical, you could only work overall. Overall, the image was overall. You couldn't fix anything or do creative other things in the within the image and for me you know when i when we start first started going to digital intermediates that is when you take a film original negative and, and transfer it and scan it electronically mm-hmm. right transfer it electronically first and then when we came into digital process they would scan it right so that was another development that you could actually you know, manipulate the image within the image. So Inside take, the frame. Exactly. So I'd take the shadows and make color in the shadows, or I could make them darker, or I could bring them up. And, I mean, that whole process has advanced so much in the past 10 years. I mean, even the past eight years. I mean, it's phenomenal now what we can do. So Eternal Sunshine, we actually did as a digital intermediate. You did it as a DI, and that was, right. and that was actually quite uh, uh, re- relatively early in, in, the, in the journey of, of what would become the norm. That's right. Right? That's right. That was early DI. Right. Very, very early DI. We actually did it in 4K, so, which was which highly was un- unusual. Unheard of at that time. Unheard yeah. of. Right. So we had to do it in 2.2K because you couldn't even see it in 4K. So we would do our corrections. Because the processing power wasn't there yet. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We didn't have the processing power. You couldn't see it immediately. So we'd have to do our changes, and then we'd only see it the next morning because I'd have to spend all night rendering it. So, you know, <laughs> it's a very changed world. Yeah. I mean, now it's just uh, uh, instantaneous what you get back. And, and through all of this, right, You've had the chance, uh, uh, when I think of all of this, you've had the chance now to share your knowledge as an educator, right? You've taught a little bit, right? When you get a chance to, right? Well, I, yeah. I, yeah. Spike will ask me to come in and speak to his class. Speak to his or class, I'll go right. And speak in Tom's Columbia University class. You know, I'm, I, I, I try to, to pass on the knowledge as much as I can. I mean, I'm a believer in shared knowledge. And and em, and embracing people who are trying to learn, you know, I think it's it's really important. I, I'm not ready to go into the world of academia. No, 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 not 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 as a not as a career commitment at yeah, this point in time. Yeah. I, I'm fascinated by something <laughs> that I that I read. We know each other a lot of years, and I, I did not realize, although we were at Kamermaj uh, in Poland together at the same time, I didn't know that you. Had or had you actually attempted to attend the film school in Wuch in Poland as a place to go to school? Yeah. Or do, is that tell me? Because I don't know that story. We we've never talked about it. So tell me that story. I'm I'm fascinated. Yeah, well, that was yeah, because you because you, you have Polish roots and your family, exactly. and 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 
was there uh, uh, Polish sp- uh, spoken at home when you were a kid? Did you learn the language at all? Or my my parents uh, could speak Polish. They spoke Polish in their houses, but not in our house. My grandparents spoke Polish. I could hardly speak to them when I was growing up. I mean, I always heard Polish in my house when I was growing up. So you had heard it all your it. life. You didn't yeah. learn it as a, as a yeah. Yeah. So I started taking Polish because when I was in my last year at Brown, um, I started, I had heard about the school in Woods, and I knew that it was one of the best film schools in the world. For cinematography, you know, a, a, exemplary. Right. So many cinematographers have come out of, of that school. Janusz Kaminski... Um, Hoyta van Hoytem. Hoy, did Hoyta go to? Hoyta, Hoyta went uh, there. Do you I didn't know, know? You that. know Hoyta? I didn't know that. Yes, he really? did. Yeah. yeah. I, in fact, I met Hoyta uh, at Cameramage before he shot the the fighter yeah. for David o. Russell, oh, yeah. which he shot to perf. Crazy, but wild, but beautiful. And uh, and and I had met him at. Cameramage before that, and then he came and we worked with him I in the no lab. Idea that he, had, no. he, he he studied there, and yeah. he now lives in 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 Stockholm. Um, but he went to school in in Poland and is a native originally of Amsterdam. He's Dutch. Um, uh, but uh, Pavel Edelman, uh, Janusz Kaminski, all these fantastic uh, Andrei yeah. Barkowiak, of course, right? All these yeah. famous uh, emblematic Polish cinematographers and European cinematographers that came from all over to study there yeah and my understanding is is that the people that went there when you you know i like to think of like if you if you learn the camera at at the school in poland you 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 learn the mechanics of the inside of the camera the the all of the all of the parts and the machining and all of the things that you learn you learn about the camera the way an auto mechanic learns about a car you know, you really understand everything about the body and and about the mechanics and the machine of the camera, and then you also study all of the photo optics and everything else that goes with it, right? Yeah, so it's, it's like very scientific, very scientific, right? Yeah, 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 very much so. And when I was in France, I was so embedded in the theoretical. I really wanted to get my hands on the camera. I wanted to to, to actually do it. I wanted to study the practical. So when I was in my last year at school at Brown, I wrote, uh, applied for a Fulbright grant, which I got. So I was awarded a Fulbright grant to go to Poland to study at the film school in Łódź. And I started taking Polish with the librarian at Brown. Oh, my who God. Was a, a linguist. What and, a great story. Yeah. This is, a, this, is fantastic. <laughs> this is something I never knew. Keep going. Well, it, wasn't, it was kind of a librarian. He was the guy who would check out the books to make sure you weren't stealing them. So it was this old guy. His name was Eli Adelman. And he you know, came from Odessa, Russia. And I started talking to him. I don't know. I started probably joking with him as I was getting checking out my books. And turns out that he was a linguist. And in the old days, and so I started uh, taking Polish lessons with him, you know, with the intention to go to Poland. And then martial law fell, and I couldn't go to Poland because I mean it was impossible to do anything in Polish. At so the time that of was law. so that was the block. That was that's the reason why I didn't go. Pretty wild. The story. Yeah. The story. Did when you went to. I can't remember when we were at Camera Was that still, that was still in Wooch, right? 
or or was it already in Bidgush? I can't even remember because no, I, I I went all the years the, going back to when it was in Wuch and then to well the Bidgush. first time I went it was in Toron in Toron which yeah is very in the north which is an old medieval town and it's back there again yes yeah. yes yes which is a great old town I mean it, it's freezing cold there in the winter but the first time I went it was very much still under the communist veil you know I mean it, Poland was deep set behind the Iron Curtain. So I actually, so after my Fulbright grant to go to Poland, I changed it. I applied, reapplied, and I got it to go to Romania because there was something crazy in me that wanted to experience what life was like behind the Iron Curtain, which I was out of my mind. Because at that time, it was 19, it was in the early 80s when Ceausescu was at the height of his horribleness. And, but I had heard that there was a catch of, of a whole group of, of interwar photos that were done between the world wars. It was the rise of socialism in Europe, and that they, it was in the library in, in Bucharest. In Bucharest, yeah. And so I was going to put together an exhibition for the ICP. So, so I, I, Fantastic. I, this, what a great story this is. <laughs> Keep going. So I, I was waiting for my visa to come through with the Romanian government. And so I sold my car thinking that I was going to go to Romania for a year and, you know, move back into my parents' house outside of New York City and was waiting. So one month went by, another three months went by, uh, two months went by. And finally, I realized that uh, they weren't going to give me my visa because Romania um, – was not allowing the Jews to emigrate to Israel without paying for their whole education. So the United States withdrew most favorite trade status. And so they stopped all kind of cultural exchange. So that's the point where I decided I would go into film. Because I thought, all right, because it was about photography. And I thought, all right, I'm going to actually start doing this. So I, that's when I started taking a Super 8 class in New York City. I kind of kicked it off. At? Where was that? At it was that at NY. Where was where is somebody's you do- loft on Chamber Street? For real. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I love it. And then that led to the nights at NYU and or yeah. not. Yeah. Sort well, of. Yeah, that led to me being asked if I wanted to be an editor of a documentary. Right. And I went to go and interview with this woman and then she was willing to hire me. I mean I went at the recommendation of the person who was teaching the Super 8 class, and I said to her, I said, I mean, I would love to do this. I said, but I don't have the technical knowledge to do this. I said, why don't I work on the film but in a different capacity? So I became the associate producer, and I organized all of the um, voiceover sessions. I organized, you know, all the, I oversaw all the post-production process and everything, you know, the film negative and all of that kind of stuff. When they were doing negative cutting on an upright moviola, oh, I mean, how long ago was that? Well, that, well yeah, it was the, 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 well, the uh, they were working with the, the print print editing, work print editing on the upright yeah. moviola. And then the, then you had negative cutters like Stan Zaba and all those other guys. It was guys. Stan Zaba. Stan Zaba was, yeah, yeah was uh, yeah. One, of the, one of the many... Uh, 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 negative cutters, including Noel Penrad and others that worked in, in New York in the era, and that was uh, uh, that became a uh, something that really embraced technology later on. But at that time, it was you were you were you were counting frames or 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 
key code numbers of the uh, on the, against the perforations, and uh, matching them up against the the print that that had the uh, the same numbers. Yeah, back yeah. back in those days, f film was a much more physical act. Very physical. It was yeah. all about using your hands and using your eyes, and and you know that's changed a lot. I mean, we still do that in certain ways, but it's it's more removed. Yeah, we can't touch it. You anymore. can't touch it anymore, yeah. and you had. Uh, Film hanging in bins and assembling on a steam back, and and then uh, playing back on a on a on a you know with the flatbed with multiple tracks and everything. Yeah, it was it was very it was very it was very visceral. Yeah, yeah. it was very visceral, and that leads to the idea of preservation. So, you know, the fact that we can go back and look at some of those film from years and years ago is because the negatives still exist. Right. Right. And so when and you negative and negative lives on. Yeah, I mean, that was a big issue when digital first came around was, you know, how are we going to preserve the so-called negative? Are we going to keep it on hard drives? The technology keeps on changing, and everybody knows now is that how are we going to store this? Also, all, all the millions of pictures that you have on your iPhone, are you ever going to print them? Are you ever going to get off the cloud? I mean, what's going to happen if the cloud bursts? You know, you're going to lose all of those pictures. Or in this case, yeah. if, in this case, if the data center goes down, which is effectively what the cloud becomes, yeah, is what, it, what cloud is, yeah. Right. It's a exactly. massive remote data center with all of our all of our belongings in it, right? You know, I mean, we, right. we used to vault uh, a negative in a in a lab vault, and then ultimately in bonded storage, or 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 uh, out at one of the many uh, storage facilities in New Jersey. And uh, that the labs use as remote storage, and now uh, uh, we have our remote storage is uh, a digital storage in the cloud in a place that we don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. the academy, and I'm a member of the academy for a long time, and one of the biggest concerns of the academy was how to preserve future film. The archive. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a fitting end. Well, right. I don't, how, I don't, to how to preserve future film? So. Boom. He's just going to turn off the beeping light. Yeah. No, no, no. It's true. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, the Academy has has made a, a, a mandate to uh, yeah. to 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 make uh, archive negatives. And, you know, and 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 what was uh, in the the studio requirement of the, the YCM, which, of course, was a, a standard uh, for uh, the three strip backup of the original, you know, there were all kinds of archival methods that were, that were required by studios. Um, but really at this point, just having an output negative stored properly in the proper temperature is, is the right thing to, to do to store something for in, in perpetuity with its well, tracks. Yeah. That's the one reason why when I finished my film, uh, back in 2008, uh, which, because I had it on so many different formats, I had, you know, regular 16, I had a couple of 35 elements, I had blown up Super 8 to 16, and then I had some high 8 and, you know, various different mediums from multiple, over the years. You had multiple formats, so you, exactly. you, so you could converge it all as a 35 negative in the mm -hmm. end. Well, I first had to up-res yeah. it, up -res to, it. Yeah. and transfer it to HD. HDSR. So right. I went to the highest quality HD I could. Then I posted it all in digital. Then I went back 
and made a negative, a film negative off of that and right. made a film print. Exactly. So I have a film print and film negative, which is in the Academy right now. It's in storage. As, as an archive of your as work. As an archive, right, exactly. And I have prints of Some of Sam, a print of Eternal Sunshine, you know, the labs you, used you, to do you, that. You they hold, would make a. They a would gift make a print. You so you would hold you hold a print of your own. Yes. Yeah. They used to gift the DP a print. Prints are not cheap. No, they're they not. They gift the DP a print. So I put all of my prints in storage at the academy. Oh, you did. Yeah. Okay, so you have all of your all of your your filmography archive of your print of your prints in the in the academy. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Film what what, I what have. you have? Yeah. yeah you you mm-hmm. store them there. Yeah. Which is wonderful. Yeah, the legacy of film, it, and and and, yeah. and 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 now I mean what what I love is uh, uh, revival, isn't it? Right? I mean uh, with with all the film that's shooting. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, a lot of people are shooting film. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, everybody thinks like it's 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 just you know Spielberg shooting and Scorsese getting to shoot and Chris Nolan, but Noah Baumbach, Marriage Story, shot on thirty five. Wow, you know, all of a sudden, everyone's like head is turning. Like people are uh, are taking advantage of the revival and the availability. There's a lab now in New York. Tony's out there running that with with Bob and and what's left of the people that used to work with me when I was a technical or the processors and all that. And and uh, and there's still one lab left in 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 LA. You know, Photochem's still there. Yeah, Photochem yeah. is still there. Yeah. The same daily supervisor is still there, still, Mart Horn. They're still there. <laughs> and then in London, you still have you know you have Cinelab. I got a chance yeah. to work with them when I worked with Darius on Lost City of Z, and we we processed all the negative there. And it's like you know, film is not it hasn't gone away. And and I and I what I found interesting was I think it was I can't remember who it was recently that was talking about a class that they teach, but there are there are certain programs where where they're still teaching uh, to shoot film, which is wonderful. There's still ed, there's still education for for cinematography on film. It's not all gone. Well, I think yeah. it's important because yeah. it it's a, a way of looking. It's a way of seeing and thinking about contrast and color and and important because you know working so much in digital now you know, one tends to just rely upon the monitor but it, you know it doesn't leave a lot of discovery yeah. you know the, or, ma- the or magic understanding yeah you know. the organic part of the process is gone yeah and it's uh and and i like to think of it as like you know uh uh, all the tools in the toolbox, right? And that's one of them. It was like when I used yeah. to work with Errol and we did uh, Mr. Death and he shot VHS, black and white infrared, 35 color negative, 16 millimeter, some Super 8. It was total madness. And they and they output all the elements to, to, to 35 at that time that we did that film and cut the negative and then answer printed. And they were okay with it looking musty and uncorrected from the VHS output. You know, I mean, they probably treated it a little bit, but that was it. And it was like, and they had to assemble it all as film. And, and uh, uh, that process of, of physically creating the film element was, uh, was, was beautiful. And then having a film archive in the end. But, you know, uh, 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 today we, uh, we, we, we I, I used to say when, when, when film started to go away, 
uh, and someone would ask, well, what do you what do you feel about the business? I said, well, we used to be in the film business. Now we're in the storage business, the digital storage business. And there's a lot of data and we store a lot of data and there's so much recording and and rolling going on. Because when you shot film, you had you had to think about how much you shot. Right. And that was another part of the process. Right. You had to have there were limitations. Yeah, very much. I think that people had to be much more specific about what they would film map it out you know you just didn't you had to be you had to really think about it and you had to be economical about when you were rolling yeah you know that's definitely a change thing now yeah that's for sure well Well, it also has to do with feeling confident in what you're doing and also point of view yeah yeah well this has been absolutely spectacular (laughs) thank you um, uh, I mean, I, I, I mean, we could talk for another two hours. <laughs> so this was great. And, and, and for me, you know, the whole idea of the, uh, the, the transitions that you've been through, because you've gone from, from a, an era of film to a complete era of, 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 of the digital capture world, but also an era where distribution is almost entirely gone, going through streaming networks and where stuff ends up. And one of the things that you said, which I loved, was you you were not always engaged with television because of the what you felt was a lack of creativity. But now there is visual creativity in broadcast television, and there is a lot of really incredible conceiving that's going on, right? Yeah, and very and, much and so. yeah, and it makes a it makes a difference, and it allows uh, 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 all the people that are in it to to have to have an open playing field to do all of the different. Uh, uh, you know, and I don't want to use the, the the dead word of the calling everything content because it's not just content. It's episodic television. It's theatrical film. It's short format and long format. But at the end of the day, we're telling stories, and uh, and and the creativity um, uh, has, and and also the masters like yourself have been able to work in in all these arenas and and bring beauty into it, right? Which and really makes right. a difference. Yeah. It does. It, you know, it is about telling stories and it is about, you know, not only creating content and, and that's kind of key is, you know, how can we make meaningful stories today that are meaningful for our lives, you know, and, and, and help guide us in being better human beings and making the world a better place. And that's kind of what I'm about is like, how do we how do we describe the human condition and where we're at and where we're going and those are the kind of interesting stories that i'm interested in not just entertaining people of that this happens and then that happens i mean that's not interesting to me as 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 a storyteller yeah i want to make a difference well thank you and uh, and and I really appreciate you coming by tonight, and and this has been fantastic. And thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Charlie. <laughs> wow.